Hi, welcome back. Thought you'd never hear from me again, didn't ya? Well, you're wrong. Because you're at the second location with your girl, Holly, and we're going to continue our discussion of the Tommy Ziegler case. Even if, though, you thought I'd gone away, I hadn't. I was just trying to harass my husband into recording this transcript of the Jellison tape that was discovered, you know, over a decade after Tommy's conviction. They really cast some new light on perhaps what happened that evening of the murders. But I couldn't convince him to do it. So instead, I am going to be reading you a transcript of a phone conversation between two people that's going to be incredibly confusing. But that's where I am in life. And if you're here listening to me, I guess that's where you are in life too. So we'll stumble through this a little bit because the transcript I have in here isn't even labeled with like who's speaking. But yeah, I mean, we'll figure it out. Okay. So it starts with the investigator asking, hello, is this Mrs. Jellison there? And this is John Jellison. He's a teenager. He's 19 years old. His family was staying in the Winter Garden Hotel the night of the murders on Christmas Eve. They had the rear-facing motel or hotel room or inn room. It's called an inn. And they could see directly into the Ziegler parking lot. This is the young man. It's a whole family staying there. Mom, dad, younger teenage daughter, and a 19-year-old son. Okay, so the son replies, she's not here right now. Investigator, is Mr. Jellison there? And boy on the phone says, young man on the phone, I'm sorry. No, he's not here either. Investigator, you're the son? Response, yes. Investigator, right. Okay, my name's Jack Bachman from Orlando, Florida. I believe your mother talked to my boss, Mr. Egan, yesterday. Now keep in mind, Mr. Egan is the prosecutor in the Tommy Ziegler murder trial. The young man replies, yes, yes, she did. Investigator, were you down here then? young man, John Jellison. I'll call him John from now on. John, yes, yes, I was. Investigator, well, that's what I want to talk to you about. My boss probably wants me to go up there and talk to all of you. John laughs, and then the investigator says, but I understand it's kind of cool up there. John says, well, it's starting to warm up now, but it was a little bit cool, you know, right now. The investigator says, I'll bring my top coat. The weather was good when you were here at Christmas, wasn't it? John replies, Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it was cool Christmas Eve. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was cool, but a lot warmer than it is here. Then the investigator asks, did you read that letter we sent you? John replies, yeah, yeah, I did. The investigator, what can you tell us about it? John, uh, investigator, what's your name? John? John replies, John. Right. Right, we didn't observe very much, or we can't really add much more than we've got there already. My mom told Mr. Egan all about this. Ate supper at the motel, came back to our room, uh, I suppose between 8.15 and 8.30, and sat around looking at postcards, and I, uh, I was going to go to the office at the motel there and mail them at the investigator, right? This is John speaking. So I went out the door, I cracked the door, and I was just going to walk out, and there was a policeman out there in the parking lot, aiming his pistol over the hood of his police car at the back of the building. Investigator, right. John continues on at the furniture store. That was the first time that we had known anything funny was going on at all. So rather than to go off to the office there, we just stayed inside our room there and looked out through the window and the door. The investigator asks, were you on the back side of the motel? John replies, right. John replies, right. We just stood there and watched for quite some time. And then we heard what we figured were probably shots. Maybe around 9 o'clock or so. That would be about the right time. We didn't really know what time it was. But of course, we can figure that must be what time it was. 
The investigator asks, now when you heard the shots, was after you first saw the police cars? John replies, right, right, it was. We saw the police car, and that was the first time we knew anything was going on at all. Investigator asks, but you didn't hear any shots? In other words, as you were leaving the restaurant or something, you didn't hear any shots? John replies, no, nothing at all. Nothing was going on whatsoever. Investigator, so then, you didn't hear the shots then until after the police had arrived. And John replies, right, right. So I am sure they have already filled you in on that. Okay, let me take a pause and we'll regroup right there. Because right now, it's really important that we all listen to what this young man is saying. 19-year-old John Jellison is saying he and his parents and his sister were in that motel the night of the murders that's directly behind the Ziegler Furniture Store. And remember that a lot of action took place in that back parking lot of the furniture store. It's like directly faces this Winter Garden Inn. And keep in mind, it's so close. That's where Charlie Mays had parked his van. It's in the Winter Garden Inn parking lot. So they're overlooking that. Young John, he goes out to mail these postcards after dinner and he sees a police car with an officer like over top the hood, gun raised. So he's immediately like, what the, what the? So he stops to look and he's waiting, waiting, waiting. He says, time passes. He's watching and time passes. And then he hears shots fired. And that is the first time that the Jellison family heard shots that night. And while wow, they were at dinner before that. The dinner they ate was within the motel, which is directly behind the furniture store. So they didn't hear shots before then. They see a police officer and then they hear shots. And they see one single car at first and one single officer. And it's all in the rear parking lot. Okay, now let's, let's go back to where. So John says, right, right. So I'm sure they've already filled you in on that. And the investigator says, we were under the opinion that you heard the shots possibly when you were leaving the restaurant. John says, no, no, we didn't. Uh-uh. We didn't know a thing then, or we knew nothing was going on then. And the investigator says, see, well, it was all over then. And John says, yeah, right, everything? Well, then the police got there, and of course, it was all taken care of. This young man's thinking the whole time, the police responding to the shots fired, or the police responding to the crime. Nowhere ever does this investigator tell him, well, the police never fired any shots. You know, there's, there's some type of misunderstanding here. The investigator never says that, because he doesn't care about clarifying what's going on or figuring anything out. All he wants to do, and you'll see as we go on, he wants to get the Jellison family to backpedal on the statements they have made. Mrs. Jellison, the mother, has already talked to Mr. Egan, the prosecutor, and she has conveyed the same things. Apparently, based on what John's saying here, this is the second time this message has been communicated to investigators. First, Mrs. Jellison spoke to Mr. Egan, the prosecutor, and now John's doing it again. And we're going to see how the investigators are going to try to get them to change their story. But they never explain, and this is why I think the Jellisons never come forward again, because this whole time, they're thinking when the police are firing shots, those police are responding to a call of you know, someone in danger, shots fired, something already going on. But the investigator here never says, the police never fired any shots there, or something, there's some level of confusion here, let's get more out of here. He never delves any deeper. His only role here, as he sees it as an investigator, is to get this young man and his family to change his story, to say that he heard shots fired before the police arrived. See, well, it was all over then. John replies, yeah, right, everything. Well, then the police got there, and of course, it was all taken care of. Investigator, yeah. John, so that's why I say we really have nothing to add to anything. Investigator, where was your room? Like, on the back of the motel? John replies, yeah, yeah. 
I don't remember the number anymore. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember the number anymore, but it was right on the back of the motel area. Investigator, was it upstairs or downstairs? John, yeah, it was downstairs. Investigator, downstairs? John, yep. The investigator says, I've got that master sheet, you know, of where everyone stayed, but I don't have it in my office with me. It's in the other office. John replies, uh-huh. You're like, why is he telling him this? Like, the kid's telling him, don't remember the room number. I just know it was on the down floor. You can go check it on the master sheet later, but this guy's like, I don't know. It's like he's drawing stuff out, trying to keep the conversation going longer. When this kid said what he wants to say, it's not changing yet. So then the investigator says, well, when your mother talked to Mr. Egan, he was apparently, he was under the opinion that you heard the shots prior to the time the police arrived. John replies, no, uh-uh, no, that was, we first saw the police car and then we heard the shots sometime afterwards. Okay, I want to say, he's not saying, I saw the police car and immediately saw the shots. He saw the police car and there's a period of time that lapses there and that's where they heard the shots. That's very important. So now the investigator, actually right here, I think what he's doing right here is actually good investigative work. The investigator asks, oh, did you see more than one police car? And then John replies, well, that was the first thing I saw, one police car. And then after a while, then other officers showed up, you know. And then the investigator asks shortly, and John replies, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I saw them in the, eh, yeah, shortly, blank. They can't tell what he said came. They were going all around, you know, and they had searchlights and one thing and another. Okay, brief pause here. So this is what's important. John Jellison is saying his family, staying in that inn right behind the furniture store, he exits his motel room to go mail off some postcards. He sees a police officer leaning over a police car behind the Ziegler furniture store in their back parking lot. He decides to watch because he's a teenager. I mean, he's 19. He might be 18 at this point because, I don't know, only six months, only a few months have passed. We'll say he's 19. But anyway, he's a young man. He's like, and I would see that out my back window. I'd be like, mm, might want to looky-loo here. So he's looky-loo and he gets his whole family involved and they're watching. And what they see is one police car. Then they eventually, eventually, not immediately, eventually hear shots fired. And then sometime shortly after, he's like, eh, he hedges and haws a little bit on shortly after, but it's sometime, we'll say shortly, but I feel like there's some missed words in there that maybe it's not quite precisely shortly. And I'd love to know if there's more picked up on that, but this guy, this investigator does not care about that. So all we know is shortly or maybe, maybe a little bit longer than shortly after more police officers arrive. But the idea is he sees a lone car, a lone police car in that back parking lot and he hears shots fired after he sees that and we all know from as much as i've talked about this case that all the immediate 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 first responders not me first responders by police i mean the immediate first responders on the scene they all showed up in the front lot so there's nobody there's not chief thompson there's not don ficky jimmy yawn that responds shortly after he's one of the first to go inside but he's one of the first one of the first at the scene we'll say but none of these people are around back. And that's why this is so important. Now the investigator, he's like not winning and directing the conversation where he wants it to go. So he decides to try to tack back and take a different path. And the investigator asks, you didn't go over to the shopping center by any chance, did you? Over across the street? 
And John replies, uh, no, we didn't. Not that night. No, we were eating supper. And like I said, most of that evening, we were in the restaurant and at the motel at supper. And then the investigator says this. And this is important. Well, I was almost on my way up to talk to. But if you heard the shots after you saw the police cars. And John replies, yeah, I know. Now, I don't know who's saying this. Someone says, yeah, it was all over at that time. I think I can understand this now. I think John says, yeah, I know. And then I think the investigator says, yeah, it was all over at that time. So they really are leading these people into thinking that what they heard was the police responding to a crime. The police might fire shots, but that's all explained away because they're responding to a crime. This investigator never tells them that there's no record ever of the police firing shots at that scene other than what this young man is saying. And then John asks, yeah, what is there? Are there any new leads or anything? Do you have anything? Do you have any information on what? And the investigator responds, well, we have a man charged. We've got the owner of the furniture store charged. John replies, you do? Investigator, oh, yeah. John, I see. I didn't know that. Investigator, see, he had his wife insured for $500,000, which we all know for a guy's $1 million, at least, at least. This guy's got money. So, yeah, he's got his wife insured as any responsible adult does. And then John replies, oh, I see. And then the investigator, he takes this opportunity to boldface lie and say the policies were only about 30 days old when he killed her, which they weren't. They were new, don't get me wrong. She died end of December and the policies were taken out sometime in the fall. But they weren't taken out in the beginning of December. They weren't taken out in November. They weren't taken out in October. So let's not act like these were 30 days old. That's a lie. And the young man responds, to hearing that the policies were only 30 days old is, oh, and then the investigator responds, he killed her, his mother-in-law, his father-in-law, and a customer in this store. And then young John replies, oh, I see, you have him charged. Oh, I see. And then the investigator responds, he was shot himself, but it was self-inflicted gunshot, which there's no medical evidence that supports that or makes that make any sense because no one shoots himself in the belly. And we all know that most self-inflicted gunshot wounds are skin contact so there'll be burn marks and powder marks none of that exists also tommy would have had to have shot himself with his non-dominant hand to make that shot at the angle that existed so there's no evidence at all that this is self-inflicted other than the fact that the investigators want it to be self-inflicted so when they're interviewing people and interrogating people they say that it's self-inflicted like they know that is a fact but there is no fact there is no evidence that supports that I don't know why the Supreme Court can't ever come down on police officers for lying to people. Now, I kind of almost understand at points lying to a suspect. Don't tell them everything you got. Maybe tell them you got more than you got. I, I'm not going to flush out everything I feel on that right now. But I will tell you this. They should not be lying to witnesses. Facts of an investigation that is ongoing and acting like things have been proven that have not. Because I think if this young man had any facts there, like, well, we don't know if the gunshot was self-inflicted. He was shot, but we don't know if it's self-inflicted. Um, we have no account on any record of police firing any shots. And police deny that they fired any shots at the scene. If this young man had heard, the police deny that they fired any shots at the scene. And if he hadn't been lied to about Tommy's wound being self-inflicted as a definite where there's nothing to support that, maybe this kid would have thought, I need to follow this up, tell my parents, we can go somewhere else with this, instead of it just being an end-all be-all with talking to this a-hole. 
So then he responds. John says, oh, what were the, in the letter it mentioned something about other people, a white man and a black man. Was it all something? I've forgotten. And then the investigator says, well, we thought he did. See, this guy is a landlord and he treats these blacks like, you know, they are blacks. And young John just replies, uh-huh. Because, no, this guy's letting his racism show. I just want to comment on young John Jellison's response to when the clearly racist officer says that, you know, Tommy Ziegler treats blacks like, you know, they're blacks. This man doesn't realize that he's clearly not talking to another racist like himself because Jellison's just like a, uh-huh. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> like, there's a, I feel like there's a lot in that, uh-huh. And then the investigator goes on, and if he tells them to do something, they'll do it. So what happened was he told these blacks to meet him there at the store at 7.30. So, you know, they work for the guy, so they show up, and he was going to set them up to make it look like a robbery, say. And John goes, oh, I see. And then the investigator continues. In fact, he had one of them go around the side of the building and pull the power switch. Jellison, oh, investigator and he had them jump the fence in the back this is what we were really trying to find is somebody saw them jump the fence back there and john goes oh not me <laughs> this guy's like yeah i didn't see that and they're like you can just tell this guy's trying to get this guy to be like eh, you know work with us here this is what we're looking for but jellison's just like this guy's keeping it cool he's not biting when this guy's giving him all these opportunities to take the bait and do something super uber shady because it <sighs> Cause a lot of people would, you know, so I think this is, this guy sticks with what his story is. You know, he says what he saw and it doesn't change. And I like that because you don't always see that with a witness. But anyway, John goes, oh, not me. And the investigator goes, but nope, as long as you heard the gunshots after you saw the police car, then that wouldn't help us a bit. John goes, yeah. The investigator asks, how old are you, John? John responds, I'm 19. And the investigator asks, and then you had your sister with you too, right? John, uh-huh. And the investigator, right. Okay, you tell your mother I called. John says, okay, you won't need to talk to her or something, will you? The investigator says, listen to this part. This is the, the investigator's next part. It's so slimy. John's asking, you won't need to talk to my mother, right? The investigator responds, not unless you all get together and decide you heard those gunshots. And John doesn't even let the guy finish. He goes, no. The investigator continues, before you saw the police car, just completely ignoring the fact that the man just, the man just said, no, that's not what we saw, no. Just keeps on bulldozing. Before you saw the police car, and in that case, we give you a free trip back to Florida. John Jellison laughs. No, ever since we got the letter here, about last Thursday, I guess it was, we've been talking, and that's as close as we could come up with whatever, you know. And the investigator just goes, yeah, John, we heard or saw or anything. And the investigator says, okay, John, I appreciate it. And then John asks, what was your name? The investigator's name is Jack Bachman, and he spells it out. And they exchange basically goodbyes. But I just want everybody to think. This is information that supports Tommy's theory of what happened there, and the defense is never given this information until a decade after the trial. And not only does it support what Tommy has said all along, and thought from the beginning that there's some type of police official or some type of official involved in this. It clearly does, because this young man's saying there was a police officer there and he heard shots fired after the police officer arrived. And that's in no one's account of the night. No police officer says that ever happened. But people saw it happen. And that's important. 
And even when they were offered incentives, a free trip, family trip, vacation again to Florida for people from Minnesota, I mean, that's a long flight, right? Hell, it's be a nice time in the winter, I'm sure, too, take a trip to get out of that damn Minnesota. But my point is, even when they were offered things to change your story, these people didn't change your story. I love that. But I also love that this shows that when the police were confronted with something that didn't go along with what they were lining up as being the events of that night and how the murders went down, they would push a witness to say what they wanted them to say. Now these people, they got something in them that makes them say, no, I'm not going to do that. How about when they push Felton Thomas? Or they push Edward Williams? Are those people that are going to be able to resist? Or are they just too busy trying to cover their own asses? I think it's obvious the answer to that, at least what I think it is. These people have no interest in this. This is why their information is important. And that's why this should have been presented at trial, because these people have no stake in the game, unlike Felton Thomas and Edward Williams, who are tied to the events of that night. They're on the line, and that's why you have to question what they say. And sure, they might be telling the truth, but you have to accept the fact that they might not be. And you have to accept the fact that these investigators look like they're willing to push people into changing what their statements are. And I think they easily could have pushed Felton Thomas into saying things that maybe weren't true. But we'll get into that later. Now, in my opinion, Okay, so there's really a lot to unpack here with this Jellison tape, but one of the things I really wanted to speak about was, I think a lot of people seem to get bogged down on focusing on the time that the Jellison family say that they heard shots, which is around 9 o'clock, that was their estimate, and that's just 18 minutes before Tommy called for help. Now, some people think that perhaps the Jellisons, who, you know, they hail from Minnesota, were still on central time, meaning that their 9 o'clock equals eight o'clock but in my opinion the but in my opinion the focus really should be on what the Jellisons saw more than the exact time they saw a police officer leaning over a cop car with their gun drawn in the back parking lot of the furniture store then they heard shots and then more police arrived later now it doesn't matter what time this happened if it's 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. I mean, it does matter, but that's not the most pivotal element here because the state has always maintained that no officers ever fired a weapon in the furniture store and that all police officers arrived after all shooting was done. What the... If that's the truth, then what did the Jellison see that night? Because something's not lining up. Did they see the murder of Charlie Mays and the attempted murder of Tommy? Did they see what Tommy had been saying ever since the murders happened? That perhaps the police were involved in the murders? It amazes me that every piece of new evidence that comes forward, it always supports Tommy's innocence and the defense's theory of the case. There's never something that comes out about these murders that after the trial, not, no new evidence has ever come out that has made me think, that Tommy Ziegler is guilty. And that's interesting to me. It should be interesting to you too because lots of things have come out and every single item points towards innocence. And when everything's pointing in one direction, you have to look in that direction, don't you? But anyway, when Tommy's appellate team became aware of the Jellison tape, they immediately raised the issue 
of the Jellison tape on appeal. Now, the Florida Court of Appeals ruled that Tommy should have raised the issue of the withheld tape before the deadline of January 1st, 1987, for raising appeal issues based on claims raising from you know, state-based claims. Now, remember that date. It's January 1st, 1987. That's when anything based on state-based claims that he's going to raise on an appellate level in state court all the new evidence stuff has to be raised by January 1st, 1987. Now, the state had withheld the tape until April of 1987, after the deadline had passed. Now, now this, now, now, the state had withheld the tape until April of 1987, after the deadline had passed, but the appeal court said that did not matter. The time to raise the issue of the tape had run out before the defense even knew about the existence of the Jellison tape. And unbelievably, the and unbelievably, the Florida Supreme Court upheld this ruling. Now, this is a major problem in death penalty cases because many states have a hard deadline for bringing evidence before the state courts on appeal. I'm sorry. This is a major problem in death penalty cases because many states have a hard deadline for bringing new evidence before the state courts on appeal. Oftentimes, these deadlines are completely inflexible, and their length varies between states. So the other option you have when newly discovered evidence that is time-barred from being used in an appeal of a conviction in the state court level is an attempt to move for a new trial in federal court based on a violations of the defendant's constitutional rights. And in this case, the argument would be made because this was newly discovered evidence by the defense, but the prosecution had it the whole time. So this is not only just, if the basis wouldn't just be on newly discovered evidence, it would also be on the fact that it had been withheld by the prosecution. Now, this is where I might get a little too legally, because I think the withholding of the Jellison tape should have been addressed in a motion for relief before the federal court, because I think it is evidence of prosecutorial, 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 I think it is evidence I think it is evidence of misconduct on the part of the prosecution. Now, this violates a defendant's right to due process, which includes the right to be given any evidence that might tend to show the accused innocence. Now, I consider the 14th Amendment to be my favorite amendment because it's the one that gives you a fair trial, you know, at least in theory. But to me, it looks like the Jellison tape was raised on the state level of appeal. And I could be wrong here about this, but I believe that the withholding of the Jellison tape violated Tommy's due process rights guaranteed under the U.S. Constitution. And with the outlandish size of the appellate record in Tommy's case, I honestly can't pin down if this issue was raised in federal court. I just personally think it should have been, and honestly, perhaps it was, and I'm just not finding it anywhere. But to me, this is a clear violation of this man's due process rights. I think, uh, I mean, you might want to call this a Brady violation, if you think of it that way. Now, when this whole tape comes out, it starts hitting the news. There is an asshole from the Ninth Circuit State Attorney's Office said that the appellate, that, now, when this starts all hitting the news about this Jellison tape and um, Tommy's appeals based on it, this asshole from the Ninth Circuit State Attorney's Office said that appellate claims such as those based on the Jellison tapes were mere smoke screens. He referred to them as smoke screens. 
mere attempts to delay the imposition of the death penalty. In the same statement, this guy admits he knows nothing about the Jellison tape. I mean, he didn't let that from him claiming it was a smokescreen. So let's just try this on for size. How about when you don't know what a reporter is asking about in relationship to a death penalty case, you either familiarize yourself or you shut the fuck up? Because you're just saying, yeah, I'm not familiar with the tape, but it's a smokescreen. If you're not familiar with it, how would you know it is a smokescreen? I mean, just shut up. I mean, the... the Oh, the unprofessionalness of the, it's every turn of the state is just so slimy in every way. Because if he doesn't know, just say, I'm not familiar with the facts of this. I don't feel comfortable in commenting on this because I'm not familiar with the facts of this case. Blah, blah, blah. Something of that. You don't make, I don't know anything about it, but here's my opinion. And my opinion is a load of shit. No, you don't do. I don't like it. It's not a game. It's people's lives. And I think we're, I think too often state, the state and prosecutors, it's like, oh, we got to win, we got to win, we got to win no matter what, but it, justice should be the end goal, okay? That, that's just a point that way, justice should be the end goal. Now, the Jellison tape is huge. It shows that there are witnesses, at least four, unbiased witnesses that saw a cop outside of the rear of the furniture store before they heard shots being fired. This is the complete opposite of the state's version of events. Basically that the crimes had state saying that the crimes had all been committed by the time the police arrived. The the Jellison tape calls everything that the state alleges into question. Because with this witness statement there is proof that Tommy might be right. There might have been members of law enforcement that participated in the murder of his family. And like I said, this tape was withheld from Tommy's defense for over a decade. I wonder if the taped conversation only survived because it wasn't clearly labeled with what it contained. Because I could see shady investigators tossing the tape. But I just don't think people realized over time what was on that tape. I don't think it ever would have made its way to the defense team. I really, truly don't. And I know that's a harsh accusation, but I mean, the Jellison tape isn't the only thing that they suppressed, so let me keep on going. Because the suppression of the Jellison tape, like I said, was not an isolated incident. Now, a married couple, Ken and Linda Roach, they drove past the Ziegler Furniture Store on Christmas Eve at 7.20 on their way to a Christmas Eve feast at Linda's mother's house. It is estimated that it would take a car about four seconds to drive past the furniture store if the car was going around 35 miles per hour. Now, during those four seconds, while Ken and Linda drove by, they heard what they thought was a series of rapid fireworks going off all at once. There were about 12 to 15 explosions that they heard. Well, Linda seems to think it was 12 and Ken thinks it was 12 to 15. But anyway, it's definitely more than the four to five that Barbara first heard. Now, Ken remarked to his wife that some kid was probably going to get in a lot of trouble for setting off all those fireworks at once. That's how rapid it was. It was all at once, layering is how we'll put it. The couple noted four cars parked outside the front of the store and a truck parked alongside the store and a black man outside of the store walking towards the truck. Only later, after hearing the headlines in the newspapers, did the couple realize that what they had heard were gunshots. They heard 
the murders taking place. They contacted the police, and this is what the and this is about the time that Tommy's trial is getting ready to kick off. But they were told that their information was not needed. And when Ken asked for the name of Tommy's defense lawyer, the person on the phone in the police department told him he could go find that out for himself. Once again, the information that Linda and Ken had was never turned over to the defense. And Linda and Ken couldn't let it go. They thought they had some important information. And they were wondering, why wouldn't the police be interested in this? So after stewing over it for a while, they contacted Tommy's lawyers. But by that time, it was too late. A verdict was coming in, had come in. And Tommy would attempt to use this newly found, well, newly found to the defense, the police knew about it the whole time, basically, in his appeals process without any success. Once again, without any success. And I, I think this also could have been appealed on a federal level. We don't know if it was, but that's just me getting too bogged down and looking for information. But I think it's an appealable issue on the state level. It's an appealable issue on a federal level, in my point. Now, you might think, what does this information from Ken, Ken and Linda mean so much? I mean, we already have a pretty solid estimate of the time the shots from the we already have a pretty solid estimate of the time of the shots from the testimony of Barbara Tinsley. You know, she was the lady who heard shots around 7.20 as she waited for her overdue brother to show up at their parents' house. Well, the importance of the information from Ken and Linda is not just the time that they heard the shots, which is similar to the time Barbara heard shots, but it's how rapid the explosions were and the higher number of explosions that Ken and Linda heard. That's what's so important. The explosions were so tightly packed together that the couple thought it was a string of firecrackers going off all at once. They heard at least 12 explosions in four seconds. Now, there were no automatic weapons at the crime scene. Ballistics experts agree that it would not be possible for a single person to get off 12 shots in four seconds from revolvers. And geez, people think of this. Multiple guns were used. Tommy would have had to fire 12 shots, getting these all off, using more than one gun in four seconds and the bodies weren't all in the same location you have Eunice in the cafeteria area of the furniture store not cafeteria I'm sorry the kitchen area of the furniture store you have her mother Virginia is up closer to the front of the store and then you have the father her father he's almost to the back room but not quite there he's the back he's in the back of the showroom and then you have um, Charlie Mays, whose body is either farther back, definitely in the back room. So it's not even like these people, it's the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You know, they're not lined up against a wall and the pistol man's doing this. This man would have to be running around doing this with various guns. And they'll be like, oh, he's doing one in each hand. No one does that. And second off, it's more than two guns used. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's not feasible. I mean, you could do something like, I, no, you can't. First off, you can't do it. I don't think you can do it. And you sure as hell couldn't do it with actually hit anything and have any level of accuracy. But one firearms expert, uh, Michael A. Knox of Knox & Associates, he was contacted by Medell Justice Project of Northwestern University. Um, I would say they're almost like an innocence project organization that look into cases where someone could potentially be wrongfully convicted. And the students at the university really get involved and heavily analyze all types of evidence related to the trials and the convictions. Now, this firearms expert, Knox, he noted the importance that the ear witnesses describe the shots 
Okay, now, now this firearms expert, Michael Knox, noted the importance that the ear witnesses described the shots as like firecrackers, because this implies it was multiple guns going off at once, and not the sound of a single shooter shooting one shot after another in a series. This wasn't a series. The firecracker analogy describes the sound of the shots as being layered one shot on top of another. Okay. Okay, so Barbara only heard four to five explosions, and then there was a 15 to 20 second lull before another series of six or seven explosions. Now, Barbara, she confesses to not knowing that much about guns, and when interviewed later, she admitted that it could have been more than four to five explosions. She just knew that it was a series of loud bursts, and because she's not that familiar with guns, she said, yeah, it could have been more. I just don't know for sure. I think Barbara can be trusted because she just seems so honest and unbiased because Barbara was not a fan of Tommy's. They were acquaintances around town and she seemed to think that Tommy thought too much of himself. And honestly, I can see where Barbara's coming from. Tommy's carriage and confidence could be off-putting to some. I mean, think about it. He's a millionaire born into a family with a successful business, the only child. I could see him being a little bit smug. But Barbara doesn't think that Tommy's guilty, and she has her own reasoning for thinking that Tommy's innocent. Barbara, she knew that Tommy had terrible eyesight, and she just couldn't imagine how in that large store he could have successfully shot so many people in the dark. Barbara makes a very valid point, and I like that even though she didn't personally like Tommy, she has an open mind and can apply reason to the situation and facts. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. I mean, Tommy's jury needed a barber on it. And I think that could become a catchphrase. Jury selection. Let's put a barber on it. You know, someone that's willing to look at things with an open mind and, you know, a little bit of an ability to reason and put things together with common sense. Now, besides the rapid number of explosions and their overlapping nature that Ken and Linda hear, there is something else that they see on that night of the murders that's very important. Ken and Linda place four cars out in front of the store's parking lot, along with a truck parked on the side of the store and a black man walking towards the truck. Listen to that. They said walking. This man wasn't fleeing the scene. He wasn't in a panic. Perhaps because he wasn't under attack. Maybe he was an attacker. Makes sense, right? Is that Edward Williams going to hop in his truck to go pick up Tommy at his house after Eunice and her parents had been killed? I mean, I don't know. But there's a truck there, and Charlie Mays drove a van, so it's not Charlie Mays. And it's a black man walking towards a truck. I'm not saying Edward Williams is the only black man in the Orlando area to own a truck. But he is a, a character. He's not a character. He's, well, he is a person that's involved in these murders, whether it's a witness or more. But he's a participant on some level. Now, I want you to think about this. The police suppressed the statements made by Ken and Linda Roach, and they hid the Jellison tape. So if the police were willing to suppress evidence, I have to wonder if they would go one step further and plant evidence. It's an accusation I don't like to make, but it's one that makes some level of sense. And when I write out my research for these cases, I try to keep things in order as I go. And this has been a tough one because this is like a bit of a mammoth writing out that I had to do. It's like a dissertation. 
And I try to keep things, you know, in order and logical sense as I go. And at the end of my document, I write down stuff that hits me and I just don't know where to put it, but it's important. And I just, I need, I need to emphasize this, I need to go back to it. I just don't know where this goes, but it's like something that struck me. It's just like, ah, I gotta get this down because it's too important to miss. So that's why at the end of my story, sometimes things get a little bit confusing because I've been trying to weave these important things in throughout the whole podcast. But anyway, at the very bottom of my document, in all caps, on the Tommy Ziegler case, the main problem for Tommy is the blue towel in the storage cabinet that came from Curtis Dunaway's car. To me, that's the biggest piece of evidence against him because there's just no reason for that towel to be in the cabinet. No reason. No reason at all. The towel was kept in Dunaway's car to cover holes in the upholstery. Why would it end up in the store? There was no blood on the towel. It had not been used to clean up the crime scene. And regardless of whether you think Tommy committed the crimes, there is just no need for him to bring that towel inside. And it would amount to a major error on Tommy's part if he had done that. Because according to Tommy, Curtis Dunaway's car was never at the store after the pair exchanged cars at Tommy's house earlier in the evening. So the towel was last seen in the Dunaway car at Tommy's house. Why bring the towel inside the furniture store? Perhaps to wipe fingerprints off something? Guns? I mean, those guns he went out of his way, according to Felton Thomas, to get Charlie Mays and Felton Thomas's fingerprints on them. So Tommy brings that towel in there to wipe off the guns? No, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Because there would be rags in the store. Or use your damn shirt. You don't bring in the blue towel from a car where it's always been kept and will be missed. It has no purpose. And that vehicle has no purpose being at the crime scene that night. So I just think that Tommy would have had a need to go out there and get that towel and bring it in there, into the store. That's part of what me starts right there thinking it might be a plant because it doesn't make sense. You can't tell me that in that furniture store they didn't have towels or rags or cloth or even toilet paper, paper towels in the kitchen to wipe things down if that's what you want to do. You don't need that blue towel. And I just want to say this towel was really holding me up until Philip Flinch in Fatal Flaw revealed a theory held by William DeWayne. He's one of Tommy's appellate lawyers. And this theory is that the items found in the storage cabinet in the storage room were planted by investigators, potentially. And these items that could potentially have been planted are the grocery bags with the spent shells and cartridges and the blue towel. The bags and the contents don't bother me, the cartridges and shells. Guns were kept in the store, and that was freely admitted by everybody. So to me, it made sense that ammo would be in the store too. And even just shells, because lots of people repack ammo, especially if Tommy is supposedly to be like such a frugal guy. I could see that. You know, repacking ammo, save a little bit of money. That is a thing people do. So people that do that, they keep the shells. Okay, so back to the blue towel from Curtis Dunaway's car that was found in the storage cabinet. The Orange County Sheriff's Office had control of the crime scene for about 15 days after the murders. And during this time, they collected evidence and also submitted the evidence they had collected for testing. The items from the cabinet were entered into the evidence log on January 2nd, a week after the final piece of evidence had been removed from the store. So there's a gap. But when the murders happen, they collect all the evidence, a week passes, and then all of a sudden, they find all that stuff in the cabinet in the storage room. Like nobody had looked there before. Kind of hard to believe, right? Now, Don Fry testified twice that the items in the cabinet were actually found on December 27th. But there are evidence receipts and logs dated January 2nd that shows that Fry is lying. 
but he never lets the verifiable truth stop him from just boldly fibbing. Elton Evans was the investigator who testified at the trial about evidence logs and chain of custody information. Now, Elton Evans was the officer who actually found the bags in the cabinet, and he testified that he did so on January 2nd. He's the man that found the bags, found the blue towel, he found the evidence that came out of that cabinet, and he testified that he found those items on January 2nd. And his corresponding report cited the date as January 2nd. Now, Don Fry, he keeps always saying that these items were found December 27th. But there's nothing written down that supports that. And I trust Donald Fry about as far as I can fart. So I really don't put much weight into what he's saying. In fact, everything he says, I view with a let's look at it a little bit closer type of situation. Now, Ellen Evans was not in the Ziegler Furniture Store on December 27th. You know, the day that Donald Fry says that these items were found. And he admits himself that the items were recovered by Elton Evans. Doesn't bother Donald Fry that Elton Evans was not in the store that day. He was not processing the crime scene in the furniture store on December 27th because Evans was readying the evidence already secured for shipment to the FBI on that day. As the evidence was going to be dropped off in Washington by Evans the next day. He's prepping everything to go. So the stuff in the cabinet, if it had actually been found on the 27th, wouldn't it have been immediately brought to Evans so it could go out on that shipment to the FBI? Because it seems like that shipment was the first one. And really, I might think it might be the, the bulk of it, the main one, because they had already collected, I mean, they had collected a lot of their evidence already at that point. So I'm not going to say it's the only one, but that's really the main one. But this evidence that was found at the you know, last minute was to me the most damning evidence of all. And it has questionable origins. Why wait that late to search the cabinets? Honestly, I can't believe that by January 2nd is the first time they looked at those cabinets. I mean, I kind of believe Donald Fry that they searched those cabinets on December 27th, but I don't believe them that they found the bags with the shells and cartridges and the blue towel and all that crap there. I think they searched them December 27th, but I think they found the evidence January 2nd. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? I think you get what I'm laying down. <laughs> because if, if you look at the, um, the evidence logs, you can see that they searched, you know, the file cabinets were searched immediately and other items right beside that storage cabinet were seized. It was a tub of wax and um, another type of towel. Those were seized days earlier. It makes sense that the cabinets would have been searched then, not January 2nd. Dwayne thought that the items in the cabinet had been potentially planted either by an investigator or a participant in the crime that had ongoing access to the crime scene. It's not necessarily that the police were just doing a frame-up job of Tommy by planting that evidence. The theory that the police were involved in the crime and then to cover up when every when shit all went sideways. And the original goal of what I think was was to kill Tommy that night. That didn't go as planned. In the end, at least 
they can pin the murderers on him. I mean, I think at this point, it's self-preservation on their part. It's less about taking down Tommy, more about covering their own asses. And that's the idea is, was it just police planting of evidence to get the guy that they were so sure was guilty? Or was it potential police planting of evidence to cover up their own involvement in the crime? Who the hell knows? But neither could be true. One could be true. It's hard to tell. Wait, I just think it's important that you realize what I just said, that one of Tommy's appellate lawyers actually thinks that an official was involved in some capacity in the murders. And I just think it makes sense. But while we are on the topic of planted evidence, I want to talk about the slugs that were recovered from the orange grove. But first, I want to remind you that none of the slugs matched any of the guns from the crime scene. So in my opinion, they were of very little evidentiary value. They were simply slugs. But according to the prosecution, these slugs are incredibly important, and they use the mere existence of these slugs to support Philip Thomas's story about going to the Orange Grove to test some guns with Charlie Mays and a white man that Charlie told him was, quote, Ziegler's. Now, once the police hear Philip Thomas's account of the trip to the Orange Grove, the police decide to comb that grove for some evidence of the target practice, such as slugs or shell casings, to back up this part of Philip Thomas's story. Now, a group of prisoners from the local jail were assigned the task of searching the grove looking for evidence of you know guns being fired there the group spent two solid days searching and they found nothing then all of a sudden a slug was uncovered on january 12th in 1988 a documentary on the furniture store murders was broadcast and it caught the interest of a man in england this man was named john bold and he was in police custody waiting to be deported back to england in january of 1976 you know the month after the murders now, he must not have been a serious offender because he described himself as being in minimum custody and he was allowed to go outside of the prison to work. And he was part of the crew of inmates that searched the Orange Grove. Now, this English guy was deported back to England in February of 1976. So he wasn't stateside to hear how the Ziegler investigation and trial unfolded. But when he saw the documentary in 1988, he contacted Tommy's lawyers and told them about his firsthand experience searching the orange grove. John Bold told the defense team that after two days of searching for the bullet or any evidence of a bullet or shots being fired at the orange grove and finding absolutely nothing, John Bold heard a supervisor say, the supervisor was a sheriff's deputy, I believe, that was there um, watching the inmates and kind of overseeing the search. Apparently, John Bold heard this deputy say, we will just have to produce one anyway from somewhere, referring to evidence like a casing or a slug. And lo and behold, a slug was recovered from the orange grove. And this is where I had to learn what a slug is. To be honest, I don't know a lot about guns. Sure, I've shot them. Sure, I own one. But in general, I'm not real familiar with all of the terms. I am used to hearing the term slug refer to a shotgun slug. And I know that there were only handguns used in the murders. So I was a little thrown off. So here's a little ammo for dummies. Cartridges are the whole thing intact. A casing is the structure that surrounds the slug, which is the projectile. Basically, the slug is the part that you actually get shot with. So anyway, a slug was found, but we also have one of the searchers, John Bold, claiming that he overheard sheriff's deputies talking about planting a slug since they hadn't been able to find anything after two days of searching. And then John Bold went on to say that he and the, another inmate were told to claim that they had found the test-fired bullets the final day of searching when they had not. According to John Bull, the inmates were told to never tell anyone that they hadn't actually found any evidence of guns being fired in the grove, and the inmates were threatened into silence. 
and the inmates were threatened into silence. Apparently, the deputies all felt comfortable talking in front of this English guy because first, he was being deported back to England in a couple of weeks, and second, because they threatened him, stating it would not be, quote, very healthy for him to repeat anything he had heard that day. You know, sounds like they might be trying to tie up some loose ends and cover the bombs there. So, the slug that was allegedly found in the grove, like I said, it could not be positively tied to any of the guns at the crime scene, but it, it did have some of the same general rifling characteristics with a Securities 38, which was one of the guns from the crime scene. But it's important to remember that it was the two guns that were bought by Frank Smith, the two RG revolvers that Tommy was supposedly trying to get Charlie and Felton's prints on at the Grove. So I don't think the state ever even argued that the Securities 38, that's the one that Tommy kept in his truck, was ever fired at the Grove. I don't think the state ever says that Tommy took the 38, Securities 38 to the Grove and had them shoot that. I believe the whole time the state was saying it was the two RG revolvers that were 22s that were shot at the Grove. So that's odd. The recovered slug doesn't match any of the guns used in the murders, and the gun that it shares some similarities with wasn't even one of the guns that the state alleges Tommy was supposedly trying to get people's prints on at the Grove. According to the state's theory, it's not even a gun that's attached to the Grove at all. In my opinion, this is very little evidence of anything. Now, to me, this slug means nothing. It doesn't match a gun, and it was just found on the ground in Florida. Now, Florida... I'm not trying to overpaint you guys like gun lovers, but my point is you could find random casings and slugs in the woods where I live. It wouldn't necessarily be tied to criminal activity. I think it's the same in some areas of Florida. It's not, the slug isn't a match to any specific gun, so in my opinion, it doesn't matter. What does matter is evidence that the slug could have been planted because if the police plant one item of evidence, every item of evidence is suspect. Now you might ask yourself, you know, if you're a member of the Talking Heads, you might ask yourself, why, if the police planted the 38 slug in the orange grove that could not be matched to any of the guns, why didn't they just take a gun from the crime scene, shoot it, and then plant that slug? That would make a much stronger connection. I mean, it would actually match a murder weapon. But here's the hitch, folks. I am pretty positive that the guns were in the possession of the FBI for comparison and testing by the time that the orange grove was searched. The bullets found January 12th. Elton Evans, the officer in charge of chain of custody, now he prepared all the evidence that had been collected and that includes guns on December 27th to be delivered the next day to the FBI. What I'm saying is December 28th the FBI has in their possession all guns recovered from the crime scene. The slug in the grove is found January 12th. Local police, sheriff's department, any investigators, the state does not have possession of any of the murder weapons at this point. They're all with the FBI because I think if they still had those guns on hand that's exactly what a local official could have done planted a slug that was directly fired from one of the murder weapons. Now, as soon as that slug was recovered from the Orange Grove, it was sent to the FBI for testing as well, to be compared to those crime scene weapons that the FBI already had. And that's when they came up with shared some characteristics, but not a match. Now, I want to say that this English guy, John Bold, who claims that the slug was planted, he was a criminal of some sort. I don't know why he was being detained, just that he was awaiting deportation to England. And while I don't trust jailhouse snitches. Seriously, they are usually self-interested liars, so let's not give them the dignity of referring to them as informants. But my opinion is not based merely on the fact that they are criminals. My low opinion of jailhouse snitches comes from the fact that they are usually exchanging their testimony for their own personal benefit. It's not the tattling that I disapprove of. It's incentivized tattling that I disapprove of. How can you trust someone who is getting rewarded for what they are saying, regardless of whether 
whether it's true? The answer is you can't. You can't trust those people. But this English guy, he stands nothing to gain by coming forward with this information. He's not bringing something forward that would help the state and offer the, the state could offer him a better deal or something or some type of benefit. He's offering this to the feds and they have nothing that they can give him. It's just too bad that John Bull didn't say anything for 13 years. But then again, he had been deported before the trial and probably hadn't thought about the search of the Orange Grove until he saw the documentary about Tommy's case, you know, over a decade later. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I read the letter that Mr. Bold sent to Tommy's attorneys. A copy of it is posted on the website maintained by Lynn Marie Cardi. That's um, Tommy, Tommy's investigator. And the letter is signed from Avon Park CI. Now, that's a corrections institute. So it looks like he is incarcerated at the time that he reports that the uh, slug had been planted. And he footnotes the letter with the information that he is a certified law clerk for the Department of Corrections. So it looks like he might have a bit of a colorful background story there. But like I said, my disdain for jailhouse snitches isn't based on the fact that they're tattling and it isn't based on the fact that they're in prison because I believe that people in jail can be honest. I mean, I don't necessarily, they always are, but you know, question them like you question anybody else and maybe a tinge more. But my problem is they're getting a reward for what they're saying. And that's where the issue is. It's not so much at the fact that I, it's that they're a criminal that I don't trust them or the fact that they're telling on somebody I don't trust them. It's that they are getting a benefit for what they are saying. But it doesn't really matter that much about the slug, in my opinion, because I never put much weight in the slug because it didn't match anything, didn't match any guns. And the whole Orange Grove story never made much sense to me anyway. Just think about it. If Tommy really wanted gun residue on Charlie May's hands or his Charlie May's prints on the guns, save some time after Charlie is dead because according to the state, Charlie's death was always part of Tommy's plan. The simpler thing than taking these two men to the Orange Grove and doing this big big rigmarole while you're committing this major multiple person murder would be after you kill Charlie is just pick up his lifeless hand, place the gun inside his hand and shoot it. There, there we go. We got gunshot residue and fingerprints on the guns and we didn't have to go on a nighttime run to an Orange Grove. I do find it interesting that the English guy said that he and the other inmates had been told that a man had taken his hired hitman out to the Orange Grove to test guns and that the police had got this information from a confidential informant. That's not the story that the state presented at trial, but it actually makes more sense than the story that the state does present at trial. And I really think that's the only, that's the only argument I could ever understand of Tommy being guilty in this would be if it was more of a hitman situation. Not so much Tommy orchestrated the whole thing himself. I would be further inclined to believe that, oh no. Now, it's of primary importance to remember that the only source we have for this whole trip to an orange grove for target practice bullshit is Felton Thomas. And there is just something oh so fucking fishy about this guy. Why the hell did the state insist on calling Felton Thomas buddy throughout the trial? Throughout the trial, he's referred to as buddy. And when the defense asked how he got the nickname buddy, Thomas replied, after all this happened, I mean, no one ever had called this guy buddy. That was never his nickname before in life until at this point, during this trial. And it's weird. Don Fry called him Buddy, and the prosecutor did it at trial too. And there was constant confusion about what Felton Thomas's name actually was. Because he also called himself Thomas Felton, as well as Felton Thomas. It seems like his birth name is Felton Thomas, but he also likes to go by Thomas Felton. And he had two birthdays and two separate social security numbers, one for the name Felton Thomas and another 
for Thomas Felton. Honestly, what the fuck was going on? Does anyone else think this sounds super shady and just weird? I think they started calling him Buddy because they kept forgetting what the fuck his name actually was. Now, I do this all the time, and you'll probably know I can't remember somebody's name when I start calling them Chief. But the point is, this guy was doing something weird with his name. And it worked because he had a stupid first name that sounded like a last name and a last name that could be actually be a very nice first name. When he was questioned about his name, he even sounded confused. And he is a star witness for this state. It doesn't really instill confidence in his testimony overall, in my opinion. And the state expects people to believe this whole nighttime target practice in a dark orange grove based mainly upon the testimony of Felton Thomas, a guy who had a hard time keeping his name straight. And this is where I will leave you. Folks, we are nearing the end, and Tommy is nearing the results of the court-approved advanced DNA testing. We're getting closer and closer to the truth.